I trust that you all have had a great Easter week and that you had a great weekend last weekend. And uh, I wanted to pick up where we left off last week. We were looking at uh, evidences for the resurrection. The title of the sermon last week is the same as it is this week, Waging Eternity. And we started last Sunday with a clip from the movie Risen and uh, a scene where Clavius is at this moment of decision where he is wrestling with the fact that he saw a dead man. And actually at the moment of that clip where he sees him alive. And the two are in contrast in his mind. And the question is posed, what is it that frightens you? And he said, being wrong and waging all of eternity on it. The reality for many is, whether they realize it or not, they're at that same moment of decision. Either the resurrection of Jesus Christ took place or it didn't. If it took place and they're saying it didn't, and they are waging all of eternity on it. I shared my story last week of how skeptical I am. I grew up in the church. I was in the church ever since I was born, and I knew all the answers. I could give you all the answers to the, the spiritual questions, and I, I made a profession of faith. As I was walking across my college campus one day on my way to practice, as I shared last week, a thought came into my mind that really caused me to throw everything in the balance. Dave, why do you believe what you believe? Do you believe it because you know it to be factually true? Or do you believe it because somebody told you so? The answer for me was as quick as the thought that popped in my mind. I believed it because I took somebody's word for it. I want to encourage you today not to take my word for it. Students, not to take your parents' word for it. But to use the brain that God gave you to digest the facts that are here in God's word, the facts that are outside of God's word, and you decide for yourself, did the resurrection actually take place or did it not? And as we continue going through this morning, some of the things that, that I wanted to squeeze in the last week's sermon, as you'll see in a moment, there's no way that I could. But just to review real quickly where we were last week, we looked at the claims of Jesus himself last week, where he claimed to be God, which a lot of people don't realize that Jesus claimed to be God on numerous occasions, saying, I and the Father are one. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus actually made those claims. They're right here in, in the Bible. They're in the book of John. But Jesus also predicted his, his own death. He predicted he was going to die, but he also predicted his resurrection and that he will come back from the dead three days later. It was a very bold prediction. That prediction was also made. Uh, the, the, the resurrection was foretold hundreds and hundreds of years prior to crucifixion to even be dreamt of. And then we looked at the, the three options of these claims of Jesus that I believe C.S. Lewis was the first to put out there, that he was either a liar, he knew that he was wrong and he was lying about it, or was he a lunatic, he was a crazy man, didn't realize what he was saying, or indeed he was the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And then we concluded our time last week with looking at the the fact is the Bible claims in 1 Corinthians 15 that more than 500 people saw him after the resurrection. 
We looked at the staggering evidence of that, that 500 people that had seen him, and if we were to put them on a witness stand, and just to give them 15 minutes each to share their story and to be cross-examined, that we would go from breakfast on Friday morning to after dinner, or breakfast on Monday morning to after dinner on Friday, straight through, and still have all these words of testimony. There's just overwhelming evidence. And I understand that people, if you're as skeptical as I am, and I am very skeptical about things, I don't take anything at at face value, or I don't take things just because somebody says so, I don't take it to be that way. I'm very skeptical. And so I want to share with you five pieces of circumstantial evidence. Uh, J.P. Morland puts these out. He says, these are five things that we know to be true, that, that we see, And if you want to believe that the resurrection did not happen, then you have to give five plausible explanations for each one of these pieces of evidence to be able to confirm that the resurrection didn't take place. The first piece of evidence is the one that really changed my view. It was the thing that that swung the pendulum, if you will. It, it, It changed everything for me, and that is the transformation of the disciples themselves. We, we saw this a little bit last week, but I want to get to it in more detail this week. That if you look at the disciples, here are men that were really scared to death. If you look at them uh, from the moment that Jesus was arrested in the garden all the way up until the women came to tell them that the tomb was empty, they were scared to death. If you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 26, verses 55 and 56, we begin, we begin to see this. So this is the description of what was taking place in the garden in verse 55 of Matthew 26. It says this, at at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you do not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Here's what the word of God says. Even though they said they would fight to the death, then all the disciples left him and fled. Here's these men that said that they were there even when Jesus told them about what was to come. And they said, we'll we'll fight to the death. The moment that he was arrested, they fled in fear. If you turn over to John chapter 20, we see as well in in verse 19, you know, that here is the, the description of what happened after the resurrection, you know, so on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, so this would have been Sunday, the doors were locked where the disciples were. Why? Because they feared the Jews. So we can ascertain that from the, the arrest in the garden until Sunday when the women came, that they were locked in this room because they were scared to death that the same Jews that had just crucified Jesus were coming after them. And so we see this. It's very clear that they were, they were scared. We saw last week about the reliability of the women who were the ones to go to the empty tomb first, that they came back and they, they were eyewitnesses of the empty tomb. Then they, they saw Jesus and they testified to that. And so these men's lives were changed the moment they saw Jesus. They went from being fearful to courageous, courageous all the way to where they were murdered for proclaiming that Jesus came back from the dead. Every one of the disciples, with the exception of one, history tells us this, was murdered for proclaiming the resurrected Jesus. John was the only one who wasn't murdered 
But yet, as we'll see in a second, he was thrown into boiling oil and he survived that. And so therefore he was thrown into a dungeon for the rest of his life where he died of quote unquote natural causes, proclaiming that Jesus came back from the dead. And you might say, you know what, Dave, a big deal. People are willing to die for something that they know to be true. And we see this in other religions. People are willing to die for their religion because they think it's true. But let me give you the opposite. Are people willing to die for something they know is false? And so as we consider the change in the disciples' lives, that if they knew it indeed to be false, would they die for it? Here's a list of what history says, how the disciples died, and and we can debate. There's different views of how some of them died, uh, and we can debate the reliability and the probability, did they die this way? But there's one common denominator in all this. Every one of them was put to death for proclaiming that Jesus came back from the dead. James, the son of Zebedee, between 44 and 45 A.D., was killed by the sword of Herod Agrippa. Philip, in 54 A.D., was crucified. James, the brother of Jesus, who we'll talk about in a moment, who was a skeptic in 63 A.D., was cast from the temple wall and then hit in the head with a club until he died. Peter in 64 AD was crucified upside down because he didn't consider himself worthy of being crucified the same way Jesus Christ. Paul in 67 AD was was beheaded. Matthew was also beheaded. Andrew in 70 AD was hung on an olive tree. Thomas in 70 AD was had a spear put through his side and then he was burned alive. Nathaniel, also called Bartholomew, was crucified. Matthias was stoned while hanging on the cross. Thaddeus was beaten to death with sticks. Simeon crucified. And John, thrown into boiling oil, survived it and thrown in prison. All for proclaiming that Jesus came back from the dead. As skeptical as you may be, as skeptical as I was, There is no plausible explanation that all of these men would have gone to their death proclaiming a lie. They could have been all crazy. But I don't see evidence for that. When you see that these were unschooled men that were able to speak the way they did to the religious leaders of the day, it's clear that they were not lunatics. The only plausible explanation is that they saw Jesus and their lives were changed forever. Matter of fact, they claim for themselves, if you turn to Second Peter, they claim that they saw Jesus. They, did, they claim that there wasn't some thought up thing. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 16 says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made it known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For what we received, honor and glory from God the Father, we then passed on to you. you turn over a couple pages to 1 John, and you look at the first three verses of 1 John. He says, John says this, That's what was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and which we have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it. And we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was from the Father and which has been made manifest to us. That which we have seen and we've heard, we proclaim also to you so that you 
too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship was with the Father and with Jesus Christ. We are writing these We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. If you turn over a few pages to John, 1 John chapter 5, and look at verse 13. As he's beginning to conclude this book, he says this. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. God has given us such overwhelming, convincing evidence, both in his word, through history, and using the minds that he has given us to prove that the resurrection took place. I've said this for years, there is no such thing as blind faith, because faith always has an object. Christ died for our sins, the just for the unjust. He demonstrated his love, and and, and there's no greater way that he could have done that than to die to pay the penalty for our sins. But he proved who he was once and for all, coming back from the dead. That's what sets Jesus apart from any other man that has ever lived, because he is God. That's what sets Christianity apart from any other religion, because there's such overwhelming evidence. The disciples' lives were transformed forever because they saw God with their eyes. We don't have that opportunity to see him, but that does not mean that we don't still have such overwhelming evidence. And so we see that disciples' lives were transformed. But the other thing, and this is an important thing, as you're trying to prove something that you thought was false to say that it might be true, is one of the things we always look for is this, the conversion of skeptics. If something indeed is true, I want evidence that it is true. I want to see that maybe other people that thought the same way I did, that there's no way this could have been true, that their minds were changed. We are very familiar with the Apostle Paul, that here's a man that when he was named Saul was persecuting the church and he he was putting to death all those who were proclaiming that Jesus came back from the dead. And then we know there was a moment of conversion where he too saw Jesus and he was convinced all the way to his death that Jesus was Lord. But there's another that you may not be as familiar with, and that is James, the brother of Jesus. Can you imagine being a sibling of Jesus? Can you you see this? I don't know if you guys had perfect brothers and sisters, but I was always the guy, it was was always my fault. I had three sisters, and I'm a boy. Boys are different than girls, and I didn't act the way they did because God created me that way. Now, I'm not saying that I was perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but I was always in trouble. Well, imagine how bad it would be with Jesus. You know, if somebody did something, it wasn't Jesus. You know, if there was a question that Jesus probably had the answer. And so you can imagine being James or one of the other brothers of Jesus. When something happened, Mary and Joseph weren't looking at Jesus. They're going, hey, brother, what'd you do this time? So you can imagine the struggles of growing up with Jesus as your brother. But I want to I share something with you from God's word because there's some... There's a theological camp out there that, that suggests that Mary was this a virgin forever. And this is not the case. If you turn with me to Matthew chapter 13, and we look at verses 55 and 56 in here, I, I, want, you, I want you to see that indeed Jesus had brothers and sisters. In fact, we can claim that there's probably at least five brothers and sisters that, that he had based upon God's word. 
So Matthew 13, verses 55 and 56. And so you see here, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not these his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense of him. And so you look here, actually there's six, right? So you've got all the brothers. You've got four brothers and sisters, plural. So there's at least two sisters that he had. And so there's no way that Mary could have been a virgin forever, you know, that there were other brothers and sisters. If you turn back to Matthew 7, it says not even one of his brothers believed him. And so I, I get this, that they didn't, they didn't believe him. I, I can understand you're growing up with Jesus and he's perfect and now he has these claims. I mean, he's your brother. He has these claims that he's the son of God. He has these claims that he's going to die and come back from the dead. And you're going, I don't know what's in your water. But then something happened. Something happened that changed their mind. If you turn to the book of Acts and you read right here in the beginning of the book of Acts, Something happened. May I suggest that that something that happened was seeing the resurrected Lord. Acts chapter 1 verse 14. All of these with one accord devoted themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Here's the church waiting for the Holy Spirit to come upon them and in the group praying Mary and his brothers. Something happened to change their minds. Something happened that James, the brother of Jesus, became the leader in Jerusalem. Of all the places to become the leader of the church, why choose Jerusalem if that's the very place that all these religious leaders were that murdered your brother proclaiming that he came back from the dead? And then he also went to his death proclaiming that he had seen Jesus the Son of God. And so, maybe you're not convinced yet, and so as we continue to compile the circumstantial evidence, and remember that one piece of circumstantial evidence is not enough to prove anything in particular, but when you start stacking piece after piece after piece of circumstantial evidence, it does become overwhelming. And so here's another thing I want you to consider was the change in social structure that took place. We know this historically, that if you look at Stuff changed. We know all these things changed, and so there's got to be a reason these things changed. And the first thing is this, that the sacrifices stopped. You know, so for all of these years, they, they obeyed the Abrahamic sacrifice, where that you had to sacrifice an animal every year to cover the blood of the sins of your family. Immediately after the resurrection, these new believers ceased this practice. Why? Because as the Bible says, the just died for the unjust once and for all. There was no longer a need to practice the sacrificial system anymore because the Lamb of God had been sacrificed and put that to an end. The other thing that we see is the, the law of Moses. They, for all these years, they obeyed the law of Moses. That's how it became you were a, a Jewish in good standing, but now all of a sudden they obey the teachings of Jesus. Why? Because now they know who Jesus is. He is the Son of God proven by the resurrection. You know, that you see the 1,500-year practice of keeping the Sabbath and worshiping on the Sabbath that instantly changes to what? Worshiping on Sunday. And why? Because that's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. 
It's interesting to me as you see all these changes in structure that why did these things take place? Then you have a change in what we would still say is monotheism, but before it was just God the Father, right? And now what is it? Still monotheism, but God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. After the resurrection and then Pentecost. All these things that taken place in their belief system. They believed in the Messiah being a political figure that was going to come and, and restore order to the Jews. But now they, re- they understand the Messiah to be a sacrificial Messiah that came to restore order, but in a different way, restore spiritual order. You see all these pieces of things that have taken place, these changes in their social structure, and you've got to ask the question, why did they change? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's what J.P. Moreland says. How can you possibly explain in why just a short period of time, not just one Jew, but at least 10,000 Jews gave up these five key practices that had served the Jewish nation for, for all these years, both sociologically and theologically? Then he says this, my explanation is simple. They had seen Jesus rise from the dead. That's why. And so you keep stacking these pieces of evidence up one on the other. Here's another one, the emergence of the church itself. Again, in the movie Risen, the, the whole premise of that movie is this incredible manhunt to, to provide and show the corpse of Jesus because if that could have taken place, then Christianity would have been stopped in its tracks. And so they didn't. And in a short period of time, actually within 20 years of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Christianity has reached all the way to the emperor in Rome. The world has now been saturated with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because they're convinced that Jesus came back from the dead. If it wasn't true, it would have never taken place. There's two more things that I want to add as the fifth piece of circumstantial evidence for your consideration. And that is the institution of communion and baptism. I want you to think about these two in a different context. Consider communion that when the early church came together what they were celebrating was the brutal public humiliation and murder of the very one that they worship that makes no sense when we celebrate somebody that we high and high regard we don't celebrate the way they were killed Regardless of your political affiliation, if we were to celebrate JFK, we would not celebrate the fact that Lee Harvey Oswald killed him, would we? We'd celebrate other aspects of who he is, not how he was put to death. So why on earth are they celebrating these things? They're celebrating them because they realize that his death was necessary to prove who he was. His death was necessary for us to have this relationship. His death was necessary for this accomplishment of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to prove that he was indeed God. And so they are celebrating his death because of they know that that was not his last word. They celebrate his death because they're convinced he's no longer in the tomb. And then we have baptism. What you may not know is that the baptism 
that they chose was a continuation of the Jewish baptism, that, that if you were a Gentile and you converted to Judaism, there were steps that you had to go through. The last and final one was baptism by immersion. It, it was what you had to do. The final step into becoming a, a Jew was baptism. And so what the, what the early church did, they took that form of baptism and now they instituted it in a different way. Matter of fact, a very bold way, because now when they baptize somebody, how do they baptize them? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So think about what they were saying every single time that this new believer was baptized. It was a declaration that I no longer believe in Judaism as I did my whole life, but now I believe that there is God the Father. But I'm convinced that there is God the Son and Jesus Christ, and now I'm convinced that there is the Holy Spirit. And so when you see that and you see the visualization of baptism, now what they are also remembering in baptism was Christ's death, his burial as we go down in the water, and when you come back up out of the water, the newness of life, the resurrection of life. So once again, as we put all of these pieces together, we stack these circumstantial pieces of evidence, one on top of the next, on top of the next, on top of the next. We know them all to be true. And so for somebody to believe that the resurrection didn't take place, You've got to come up with a plausible explanation for every one of these pieces of evidence. J.P. Morgan said this. So remember, there is no doubt that these facts are true. What is in question is, how do we explain them? And I've never seen a better explanation than the resurrection. And so that brings us full circle to the question that we started out with today. What frightens you? What frightens you from believing in Jesus or what frightens, maybe, maybe you're convinced, but you have some friends that aren't. What frightens them from believing in Jesus as the risen Lord? All of eternity wages upon the answer of that question. Eternity is in the balance. Because of the resurrection. May I suggest for you that intellectual evidence of these facts is not enough. The Bible is very clear that the demons believe. But they tremble because they don't have a relationship with Jesus. It's not enough to know these facts intellectually. We have to yield ourselves to Jesus Christ. We need to confess that we are sinners. We need to understand that that sin separates us from God Almighty. That, and it's only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and the power that he had over death in the resurrection that we are believing. For it is our mouth that we state these things and we believe them, but it's with our heart that we genuinely believe. So my question for all of us today and I think a lot of people are going to miss heaven by 11 inches. An intellectual understanding here and total belief right here. We've got to yield because He is Lord. As we come to this time of invitation, 
Perhaps this has just been evidence that has increased your faith and praise God for that because that's why God has put it so clearly in his word. That was the writers of the, the apostles have written these things so that we may know and that we may believe that we have eternal life. And so I, I say just praise God for this new knowledge and understanding of his word. But maybe you've never yielded to that. Maybe you're still unsure about some of these things, and we want to help you with that. We want to be able to help you find the answers to the questions that you still have so that you can be convinced that it is true. Eternity lies in the balance. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful. We're so grateful that you have made things in such a way that we can understand them with certainty, that you've given us minds to be able to use so that we can sift through the evidence and make our minds up for ourselves. But God, we confess that sometimes because of the things that we have been told are true, we wrestle with these things. God, we've heard people say that you, you commit intellectual suicide if you believe in Jesus. God, I pray that nobody would take my words for it. But God, that they would wrestle with the facts for themselves. But God, I do pray that your Holy Spirit would lead them into all truth, that your Holy Spirit would allow them to understand for themselves that this is truth or not. God, that they would be willing to yield. God, may all of us be willing to yield because of the power of the resurrection, that we would yield our lives to you and that we would humble ourselves before you because you are beyond any shadow of a doubt the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And God, one day, one day every knee will bow one way or another. God, help us to see now so that we can yield now rather than when it's too late. In Jesus' name, amen.